Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Crunch Time Podcast. Our first segment of the day, Eli Manning recently announced his retirement, which means in a couple years he will be eligible to enter the Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Now, we all know he probably will get in, but the question is, should he? And we'll start with Jacob. So I definitely agree 100% that he will be in. Should he? No, not in my opinion, because I like to think keep the hall small. And because I feel too many people who played a very long time ago when the game was very different. Obviously, some people from that time should be in the Hall of Fame. But I do believe that we're putting too many people into the Hall of Fame. And at a certain point, it doesn't become as much of an accomplishment as it used to. And I think as it should. And I think Eli Manning, he he was good for a few years. But I do think that he wasn't good enough. And I honestly believe that Eli Manning should not make it to the Hall of Fame. So I agree with you in your keep the hall small philosophy. I think the NFL should have done that a couple years ago. But recently they've been letting in players who have had short careers, like linemen with seven-year careers, six-year careers, that have been very good over a short period of time. If you look at a six-year stretch when Eli Manning won a couple Super Bowls, and was a dominant quarterback, then we should let him into the Hall of Fame and keep consistency. How I think with the past decisions that the Hall of the Football Hall of Fame has made, he should got get in. He's won two Super Bowls. He played in the league for a long time. And he if you look at Eli Manning when Eli Manning is playing well, he could throw the ball really well. He had great talent. Good stats. I think he is a Hall of Fame-worthy player. So I disagree with you, especially at the point that he was dominant for a certain period of time, because that is definitely not true. I look at a guy who only made four Pro Bowls, okay? And if you take away the two Super Bowls he won, he is just a mediocre quarterback, just like his regular season record in says it he is. He literally went, he literally won the exact same amount of games in the NFL as he lost. That is not a quarterback who we should put into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which should be a select club for only the best players to ever play in the NFL. And Eli Manning is not one of those players. Sure, he had two great postseasons, but he also led the league in interceptions three times. He had a career pass rating of 84. He completed only 60% of his passes throughout his career. And throughout the majority of his career, he was an average quarterback. There has never been a time in Eli Manning's career when teams have been scared of him, when they have to game plan against him, because he's never been one of those better quarterbacks. He's just been okay. Unless the NFL wants to be like the Basketball Hall of Fame, And just anybody who was solid for about five or six years, made a few All-Star games, gets in, then they need to set the president that just because you were good for a long period of time doesn't mean you should get in to the select club if you weren't great. And you bring up some of the players that have gotten in. A good example is Terrell Davis. Terrell Davis was an MVP. He only played five years, but he was the best running back in the league for those five years. Not like Eli Manning, who's never been a top five quarterback. And I think with some of these positions that they only play uh, really good for a few years and get in 
It's just a different position. Quarterbacks are built to play for a long time. They don't take as many hits as these other positions. And that's why quarterbacks can last into their 40s, like you see Tom Brady do. And if you're a quarterback going into the Hall of Fame, you have to be a great player for a long stretch of your career. And you have to be a guy who people are scared of playing. When they see your team on the roster, they're like, oh, no, we are facing Peyton Manning. We are facing Tom Brady. No one was ever scared going against the New York Giants like, oh, no, is Eli Manning going to throw for 200 yards on us? No. Okay, no one was ever scared of him, and that's why he does not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Also on the Hall of Fame topic, we are also going to talk about Derek Jeter's nearly unanimous entry into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the question is, of course, do you think Jeter should have been unanimous? For anyone who did not know the vote totals, Jeter was one vote away from being unanimous. We'll start with Jada. Well, I mean, did he deserve to be unanimous? Yes. But, I mean, a lot of people are making a huge deal out of what really is kind of just nothing. There are plenty of guys who got into the Hall of Fame not unanimously. Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Ken Griffey Jr., every single guy in the Hall of Fame except for Mariano Rivera got in not unanimously. And is Derek Jeter the second best player of all time? I don't think so. Is Mariano Rivera the best player of all time? He may be the best closer of all time, but he's not the best player of all time. Uh, I think there are other guys who would deserve to be unanimous over him, but I really don't think it matters. Yes, of course, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, and I think that's what you really look at. I think when it comes to being unanimous, I mean, granted, it's a huge, huge accomplishment, but I really don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, it's not like he was 1% away from not getting into the Hall of Fame versus 1% away from making unanimous. There's not that big of a deal. I mean, also, Derek Jeter had an excellent career. He had He's like in the top 20 in almost every single statistic category. He now has the highest percentage of approval for his Hall of Fame uh, out of every single position player in the MLB. And uh, I think he's had an excellent career. I would say he deserved to have unanimous, but I don't think it's that big of a deal that he didn't have it. So I think the one voter that didn't vote for him is definitely a new age analytics guy. Because if you look at Jeter's career OPS and OPS+, plus, he has a career 817 OPS and a career 115 OPS+, plus, which it's good, but it isn't really that great. I think when you look at the advanced statistics, Derek Jeter was very lucky to have a great team around him to face some questionable pitching for half the year because they had run out all the starters. He racked up and played a very long career. He was a very great defensive shortstop, made some great plays like the flip play. But I his hitting numbers in adva- his advanced hitting metrics aren't there for me, which is why I agree with the one guy who didn't vote for him in that fact that he shouldn't have been unanimous. But I definitely think he should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. He has over 3,400 hits. He has he has an over 300 batting average. And he was an all-around great player. First balder, yes. Unanimous, no. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. He was one of the best defensive shortstops in the history of the game. And he could still hit, obviously, 3,000 hits. Uh, very good. 
and uh, 260 home runs from the shortstop position. That's not bad. And he just had a super high war, 72, which, I mean, it's not as high as some people, but that's still high enough, like, where you should probably be a Hall of Famer. And, you know, I just think it's obvious that he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He took his team to, like, three World Series. Um, and, yeah, I think it's obvious he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. But is he unanimous? Uh, I don't think it really matters that much. So the number one overall pick, Zion Williamson, made his long-awaited debut last night. Rob, what was your take on it? My take was in the beginning he was a little rusty. I mean, he hasn't really been able to play since October when he had surgery. I feel like he just needed a little time to get used to the whole NBA flow because he's been in college. We saw he was a dominant player in college, but he just hadn't like caught the rhythm of NBA basketball yet, kind of. He just has to acclimate to it. And so we saw that in his game. He started off really slow. He just was not doing well. I think he had like four turnovers in the first two quarters, I think, something like that. And then it kind of started picking up towards the end when it seems, or when the Pelicans started getting further and further down. He got, I think in the fourth quarter, in three minutes, he scored 17 points. He had four three-pointers just to bring his team back from a 12-point deficit. And he started bringing them up. Unfortunately, they could not catch up, and they lost the game 121 to 117. All right, so I watched the game, and I had a few things. First off, those announcers need to be quiet. They kept on talking about how fat Zion was. Like, first off, in the beginning, he hadn't played his minutes. Like, he hadn't played a single minute of NBA basketball. Who are you to judge by how much weight, you know, he has on his body? And But what I saw from the actual game was obviously I knew in the beginning Zion wasn't going to be as good as he was in Duke in the first half, obviously, because he first off, it's his first NBA game in the regular season, and he has to kind of acclimate to that, and he has to understand that it's not the same as preseason or college basketball. So he looked a little bit more scared, in my opinion, and he wasn't – he had a few nice passes and a few nice baskets, but he wasn't – he only had uh, like five points for a lot of the game. But – once Zion got comfortable and coach put him in, and I guess he wasn't feeling his injury as much, he went crazy. He scored, I think it was like 17 points in the last three minutes, or in three minutes, and until the coach took him out. But honestly, I think Zion shows flashes, and I think one day he could be a star player in this league. So I think one of those re- one of the reasons why he got off to that slow start wasn't just because it was his first NBA action, but it was also because he was taken out after like playing three minutes. And you can't get into a rhythm. You can get acclimated to the NBA game if every single time you go in, you only play for a few minutes and then the coach takes you out. I kind of disagree with you, Jacob, about Zion's weight. I think that is something he really needs to fix because he's listed at 285. That is way too much, but he doesn't look 285. He looks like he's 300 pounds. He's struggling to run. You can see several times he was tired from running up and down the court. He is just not in basketball shape, and I think that is why he wasn't as dominant in the paint as he was at Duke because he can't just use his superior athleticism when he's playing against some other great athletes. He needs to be in some great shape as well. And I think that's also why he wasn't as good defensively in his first game because defense, it's a lot about being physical and being able to react to your opponent. And I think Zion just wasn't ready to play elite NBA defense yet. As for his offense, 
Obviously, everyone's raving about the three-pointers. I thought it was really promising that he's willing to take those three-pointers and knock them down. But I will say, next game, the next time he plays against a competent team, because let's be real, there are a lot of teams in the NBA that aren't competent. Next time he plays against a competent team, they're not just going to let him take wide-open threes every time. He's going to need to go into the paint and feed off Lonzo Ball on the pick and roll, score on some alley-oops, and for that, he's going to need to get in shape. But overall, it was a really solid performance, and the future is bright for Zion Williamson. So, Rodrigo, to respond to you about the whole fat thing, I wasn't saying that Zion isn't fat and that he needs to lose weight. Obviously, he does need to lose a little bit of weight. I just think it was ridiculous the amount of times the announcers mentioned that in the beginning of the game. And I think they just they need to let him like play a few minutes of NBA basketball without you know shaming him for being fat already. Yeah, I agree. Like you know, the fat and like just his size. Uh, he's going to get bigger over a rehab process where you can't really lift as much. You can't do as much conditioning. And, yeah, he's going to look a bit rusty coming back. Uh, he hasn't played in the NBA. All the other guys are already into the flow of the season, and he's just starting coming off of an injury. So he hasn't really been doing too much basketball. And I think that's why, you know, he had the kind of slow first half. And also the coach uh, not letting him get in. Yeah, you don't want to, like, risk a re-injury and just uh, keep him out there for a few minutes at a time. But the second half really looked promising, and I think, uh, you know, he could be turning into the player that he thought we thought we were going to be just a bit later than we expected. So although there are no NFL counter games this week, there is the Pro Bowl. And so, staying true to form, we will do our NFL predictions on the Pro Bowl this week. And we will start with Rodrigo. Rodrigo, who's going to win the Pro Bowl? It's obviously going to be the NFC. I mean, I don't know how this is even a question. They clearly have the best quarterback that's participating in the Pro Bowl by the name of Russell Wilson. Second only to the Deshaun Watson. No, no, no. The best quarterback participating in the Pro Bowl. Russell Wilson along with a superstar squad in the NFC, will carry his team will, and will get help <laughs> from his team. They will both contribute to a huge win for the NFC in the 2020 Pro Bowl. I will tell you the one reason why Russell Wilson does not have the superstar squad because the best fullback, in the National Football League, happens to be in the NFC. His name, Kyle Juszczyk. But he plays on the 49ers, who are in the Super Bowl because they have the best fullback in the league. And that means he cannot play in this 2020 Pro Bowl, which is why the second-best fullback, Patrick Ricard, of the Baltimore Ravens, will bring home the trophy to the AFC once again. So I think... In the Pro Bowl, a lot of points are scored. And when a lot of points are scored, it sometimes comes down to the kicker. And the best kicker is in the AFC. His name is Justin Tucker. And for that reason, the AFC will win the Pro Bowl. Okay, so here's what I have to say. There's one reason the AFC is going to win this Pro Bowl. That one reason is the boy, the legend, Larry Tunsil. Probably the best offensive lineman in the history of the NFL. The amount of false starts he gets really contributes to his team. Really helps protect Deshaun Watson. 
So that's definitely why the AFC is winning the Pro Bowl. I have a second reason for the AFC to win. <laughs> the long snapper. The most crucial position to any football team is Morgan Cox of the Baltimore Ravens. He is an elite long snapper, and they will be getting the ball from the center to the punter and to the holder so quickly. It will be just a blur on the screen. You won't even see it. It will just end up in his hands. All I have to say, the one reason why the AFC is going to win is because Oh, is because Orlando Brown will be the third string tackle for the AFC team. I believe he will bring home the bacon and bring the AFC the title. All right. Well, I think we all kind of disagree here. I think it's kind of obvious that the NFC is going to win because of Russell Wilson, but whatever. But I think one thing we can all agree upon is that the Pro Bowl will probably be as good as our takes. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Crunch Time Podcast. Signing off for now and saying goodbye, I'm Jack Ringgold.